You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. I invite you to remain standing for the reading of Scripture, and I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Dean. Well, um, this is um, part two of a four-part series called One Big Story. Uh, When you read the Bible, this is one of the premises of this sermon series, when you read the Bible from Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, you're actually reading about one grand story, one great story, one massive, awesome narrative that is being told. And one of the goals from reading the Bible is to know what the big story is all about, and figuring out how you fit into that story, then how do you apply it to your own life, right? So last week we looked at creation. Next week we will look at the theme of redemption. We'll, cap, we'll end out our sermon series by looking at final restoration. But for today, we're looking at the fall. Which means um, we're going to be talking a lot about sin. The topic of sin is often avoided, especially in many churches. Talk about sin is now being substituted. That word is being substituted with other words like troubles or hardships. Nobody really talks about sin anymore. But we need to take it head on because Scripture does not avoid the subject. 
And we certainly should not avoid the subject. And I'm going to confess here. I was telling Sharice this yesterday. This was one of the most challenging sermons for me to write. It's challenging for me to preach. Because as you look at Genesis 3 in particular, I am confronted. I am confronted with my own sin. And I have to wrestle with that. And I have had to wrestle with that this last week. And so we're going to see, tease out what God's word says, and then we're going to get to the end and see hope. Where is the hope as we talk about sin? So let me pray briefly, ask for God's help, and then we'll get into the passage. Heavenly Father, indeed, I need your help. Um, Help me to be clear about what you communicate through your word. May it be crystal clear to all of us. May it impact our mind and our heart and result in change for our good and for the honor and glory of your name. Amen. All right. Theology and anthropology, the study of man and the study of God, really do shape a person's view of the world. A person's understanding of God and the self impacts the interpretation of any cultural event, right? How you understand God and the self affects your interpretation of like what is going on in America right now. At present, there are, in my opinion, two prevailing views on America. And each perspective wrestles with how to deal with evil that we see and sin. One perspective says, people are generally good. I've had this conversation with my dad all over the years. Like, he thinks people are just generally good. And I'm like, no, no, no. No, they're not. And so we've, we've had that dialogue. But that's one perspective. People are generally good. There's no, there's no category for sin. People have a good nature. And therefore, when there is wrong or evil, the cause of the wrong or evil has nothing to do with the individual. Nothing to do with the actions of the individual. Like, so, for example, I, I grew up in a home with three other brothers. Like, think about that for a moment. Things got broken. <laughs> we were running into walls. It was crazy. I'm not sure how we all made it out alive. It was just a rambunctious home. Well, from time to time, it could get a bit testy between si- siblings, right? And under this first perspective of the world, if I were to hit my twin brother Kelly, I could push the responsibility of my actions onto, say, my environment, the environment I was raised, or my mental capacity, or my emotional state, and the list goes on and on. Now, I'm not saying there are not underlying factors when a person does something wrong. What I am saying is if you believe a person is inherently good, then you will never get to the root cause of a person's evil actions. You will never be able to make sense of what is going on throughout our country. You can't explain away a person's actions by using academic categories like psychology, sociology, economics, although that could be helpful. You do not get to the root cause of a person's actions. Here's another effect of believing people have an inherently good nature. If you think you have a good nature 
Why would you ever need to be redeemed? What would you need to be redeemed from? Your goodness? Conversely, if you believe the fundamental issue with evil in this world is the sin of individuals, then when evil happens, you know how to diagnose the situation. So if I were to come up to you and like punch you in the face, there would be at least two things that we will need to talk about afterwards. <laughs> Number one, what is it about my sin nature that caused me to punch you, right? Like, that's a lot of heart work. Like, what's going on, Pastor Sean? Why did you do that? we got to have that discussion. And then number two, what are the consequences for my personal sinful actions? Like, <laughs> that conversation's going to take place. Again, there are spiritual ramifications for sin. If you believe you have a sin nature, you see the need to be redeemed from sin. Like, I don't know about you, but deep down, when I am left to myself, I am wicked, I am sinful, I am rebellious. I am capable of a tremendous amount of wickedness. If you believe that about yourself, then you know you are in great need of help. Like even just during worship, I'm just pleading to God, just doing a diagnosis of my own heart. Like, God, help me. If you're like that, you know you're in great need of redemption by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot get there if you believe you are, quote, good, end quote. I cannot stress enough that how you understand the nature of a person is the dividing line for how you view the world and how you view your faith. I cannot stress that enough. Now, if you grew up in a religious context, anything like mine, you might be thinking to yourself, great, all he is going to do is tell me what a horrible person I am. He's going to hammer me over the head over and over and over again talking about sin if that is you, I just plead with you to stick with me until the end because being honest with yourself about your sin nature does put you on the right path toward freedom from sin. And I think we all want that. Freedom from the condemnation that comes from sin. Okay, let's see what God says about sin from the book of Genesis. When did the problem begin? It's worth recalling what we saw last week from Genesis 1 and 2. Here's the bottom line. The Almighty God created the cosmos. He gave special attention to the creation of the earth. And from one day to the next, we read, And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. God spoke everything into existence. The cosmos did not begin when two random sparks, like, crashed into each other. A primordial soup is not the cause of life on the earth. God spoke, and it was so. That is what we read. That is what we know. 
God spoke, and with creative beauty, the sun, the moon, the stars were created. Plants and animals of all kinds were put into place. The cosmos were not created from chance, but out of choice. And what else do we see from Genesis 1 and 2? Everything God created, everything God created was good. It was good. And the crown jewel of God's creation was man and woman. Last week, we took a good look at Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. But now I want to reinforce what we saw last week from that passage with with this from Genesis 2. Here it is. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall, shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And by the way, uh, parenthetical note, this is the exact verse Jesus uses to talk about marriage. And then verse 25, which Dean started with, And the man and his wife were both naked. And the key there in this sentence, in this particular verse, they were not ashamed. The creation of man and woman in Genesis 1 and 2 are not contradictory passages, but they are complementary. Together they help us understand the significance of a man and a woman being made in God's image while also highlighting the unashamed intimacy between the man and the woman. As we read ahead in Scripture, we see that the unabashed intimacy between the man and the woman in Genesis 1 and 2 is the same kind of unabashed intimacy between Christ and the church, the church being his bride. I cannot overstate enough the importance of Genesis 1 and 2. The more you grasp the beauty, the purity, the goodness of creation, and in particular the Garden of Eden, the more sad and spectacular the fall is that we read about in Genesis 3. So what happened? How did we go from goodness and purity to deception and disease? <laughs> it's like a matter of moments. We were from this is awesome to, whoa, this is not good. We are not going into a good direction here. At one moment, we're staring at a beautiful tapestry with an elegant design, and the next moment, we're holding up a rag with oil and dirt and grease. The contrast between Genesis 1 and 2 with Genesis 3 could not be more obvious. Everything began to change with a question from an unusual source. I say unusual because up to this point, the Garden of Eden seems to be void of all evil. And it's a bit of a a mystery of how the Garden of Eden went from unadulterated goodness to what we read in Genesis 3. A new character is introduced to the story. Here's verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You should not eat of any tree in the garden? At first blush, the question seems reasonable, right, from the serpent. It seems reasonable until you go back and see what God actually did say to Adam in Genesis 2. And what did God say to Adam? It's this. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, 
you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So, got all this except for that. God gives a command, the man, Adam, can eat from every tree but one. There is no confusion in what God says. It's straightforward. Even the most creative interpreters of the Bible cannot overlook kind of like the black and white nature of God's command here. So how does the serpent, presumably Satan, especially when you read Revelation 12.9, work around God's obvious command? He takes the command of God and turns it into a question, and then laced in the question is deception and lies. By using words, the serpent deceives Eve in two ways. The first is this. The, the Hebrew word af, which ESV, the ESV translates as actually, is how the serpent begins to deceive Eve. God said, do not do this. And then the serpent says to the woman, well, did God really say that? Like, really? Do you think Adam heard correctly? I mean, perhaps there's a misunderstanding here. Did God actually say that? And just like that, a seed of doubt was placed in the mind and heart of Eve. The serpent doubles down on the deceit by saying in the negative, Did God say to you, you should not eat of any tree? What happened here? The serpent is confusing the facts. God said one tree was forbidden. And the serpent comes around and says, There is no way God would prohibit you from eating of all the trees in the garden. The deception deception happens by the slightest twisting of the truth. That's all it took. Here's a lighthearted example of how a person could be communicating a half-truth. And I am implicating myself here. (laughs) I was speaking with another husband who will remain nameless that our, when our spouse asks, asks us how much something costs, uh, we might round down to a number divisible by five. <laughs> so if something costs 15, I'm like, ah, it's, if it was 15, let's say it was 19, and I'm like, ah, it costs 15 bucks. <laughs> Just round down. <laughs> now let's be brutally honest for a moment. Half-truths, partial truths, truths that are twisted and only holding back facts are all lies. The lie of Satan from Genesis 3 continues to pervade the human heart, which results in seeing lies in various areas of culture. Yes, when it comes to speaking lies, we must look at our hearts also to root out deception. Christians must do the heart work, which is the hard work. But we also need to be aware, especially with everything going on in 2020, that lies are being spun left, right, up and down. The pursuit of facts and truth has never been more taxing, but never more necessary. So, the fix is in, in Genesis 3. The serpent has no regard for the authority of God and the integrity of God's command. 
It's clear the serpent wants to draw in the crown jewel of God's creation into a similar disregard for authority and the integrity of God's command. So how does the woman respond? The woman takes the bait from the serpent and begins to dialogue. In verse 2, she does correct the sermon, but not with the same words used by God. She says there is only one tree in the middle of the garden that they are forbidden to eat or touch. She adds touch to the claim. She cannot eat lest she die. Verse 3. In contrast, if they were to eat from the tree, God said they will die. It's a subtle distinction between God's explicit command and how the woman recollects the command and its consequences. In a sense, the woman lessens the consequences if there is going to be disobedience. And as we all know this, the dumbing down of sin, as we're going to see, only increases this desire for sin. Instead of dumbing down sin, we need to be killing sin. John Owen, the 17th century English theologian, said this, Do you mortify your sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Eve would have been helped by Owen's advice. It seems the serpent sees an in from the woman's lackluster response, and the serpent does not relent. Satan does not relent. The serpent responds as if he knows the mind of God, right? The arrogance of Satan here is just through the roof. With further lies, he responds to the woman in verses 4 and 5. Here it is. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Once again, the serpent contradicts what has been said by God, but now the serpent is even more explicit. The serpent says, Hey, you're not going to die. Relax. Now what the serpent's doing here is just a bold-faced lie. The serpent is trying to remove the consequences of disobedience in the mind of Eve. Effectively, the serpent tells the woman that God is keeping her from living out her destiny. (laughs) Do you see what God is preventing you from, Eve? Certainly, Being like God has its appeal until you realize the responsibility and demands of being God. In verse 6, we see the most spectacular and sad sin in the Bible. Satan won the battle. The woman saw the fruit of the tree. She took from the fruit of the tree, and then she ate from the fruit of the tree. She saw, she took, and she ate. Adam, in what is a clear failure in leadership, eats the fruit as well. The consequences of their disobedience is that their eyes were open, but not in a good way. 
In a sense, they experienced a new kind and depraved nakedness because sin resulted in shame. Notice the difference between verse 25 of chapter 2 and verse 7 of chapter 3. I had Dean start in chapter 2 of verse 25 and end of verse 7 for a very specific reason. It's called an inclusio, and it's, and it's showing a contrast. Here it is. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's before sin entered the world. And then in verse 7, and their eyes were both open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed these fig leaves around themselves. And you know what? They began to see things differently and not in a good way. Obedience and trust in God begets peace. Prior to Genesis 3, 6, there was no fear that nakedness would be exploited for evil. But now sin begets shame, guilt, and condemnation. The nakedness that was seen as good, holy, and intimate is now stained. In a matter of moments, sin enters the garden and into the world. And as a result, every person born into the world is born in sin. On a theological level, we call this total depravity. Romans 5.12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man being Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you know, we don't need a theological term to explain the sin of an individual. Like, any parent can tell you that when they have kids, they are rebellious from the get-go. They are defying their parents. Now, I have one short excursion to discuss. In chapter 2, God gives the command to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil to the man, Adam. You notice that? But Satan deceives the woman, Eve. So scripture is clear. Adam is, the f- is first and foremost uh, culpable of sin. We saw that in Romans. But here's my question. Where was Adam? Where was Adam? You can't get around the fact that in Genesis 2, Adam is given leadership over Eve. Humble, self-sacrificial leadership. Eve is also called Adam's helper in Genesis 2. So where is Adam when Satan was dialoguing with Eve? Now, we don't have all the details, but man, he arrives on the scene shortly thereafter. In my opinion, he is there somewhere nearby real close. I'm very comfortable saying that there was a lack of of biblical leadership on Adam's part. God had entrusted Adam to care for the garden and to care for Eve, and he failed. It did not matter who ate the fruit first. Eve is not excused from her sin, but Adam is not excused for his failure and then his eventual fall into sin. So that's my short excursion. Don't be like Adam. In verses 8 to 13 of this chapter, we read how the man and the woman 
tried to hide from God, which seems silly, right? <laughs> like, I just, I, re- I read that every time, and it's like, <laughs> what are you doing? And then I realize, <laughs> I would have done the same thing, tried to hide from God after my sin, you know? So their actions continue to affirm that, see, that sin breeds self-deception. Sin causes a person to believe lies. Sin causes a person to act irrationally. I mean, come on. How did they ever think they were going to hide from God? Long story short, from this part of Genesis 3, the revelation of their nakedness just further exposed their own sin. What else do we see from Genesis 3? In verses 12 to 13, we read that the man blames the woman, and then the woman (laughs) blames Satan. A lot of blame shifting going on here. No one was owning up to their junk, to their sin. And doesn't this sound familiar? Perhaps you can diagnose your heart. Have there been moments when you've tried to blame your sin on someone or something else? I know I've done it. We certainly see how this plays out in our culture. Never in my life have I seen segments of our culture explain away injustice like we see today. Never in my life have I witnessed how one person could possibly destroy another innocent person's life. And then, and then we read in the news that the person committing the injustice was reacting out of some type of pain or hurt, which might be too, true, but does not excuse the injustice. It seems many Christians have forgotten what Jesus said in Matthew 7, and you will recognize them by their fruits. I take this to be a general principle. And here is the bottom line. No one wants to own up to their sin and the consequences of their sin. I understand that's hard to hear. It's hard to say. I get it. But here's the deal. God is holy and just, and there must be consequences for sinful action. Sin never goes unpunished. We read in Genesis 3, there are consequences for evil actions. There were consequences for Eve's actions. God rightly dulled out consequences to Adam. And the serpent was held accountable as well. To the woman, there is going to be like increased pain in childbearing. Now, again, I've never given birth. However, I'm comfortable saying pain comes when a woman gives birth to a child. Like I actually passed out when my wife was in labor. True story for another day. Another consequence of sin for the woman is that she is actually going to butt heads with her husband, verse 16. God had even more to say to Adam for his dereliction of duty and sin. Work is going to be hard. Before sin, work was a breeze. Caring for God's creation was seamless. Now work is a chore. Man is going to wake up working hard, and he's just going to go to bed exhausted. It's not going to be easy. 
At the end of chapter 3, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They're kicked out of the garden of Eden, thus removing access to another important tree located in the garden, the tree of life. The tree of life is so significant that cherubim and this flashing sword guarded the tree. Like, I'm just trying to get that in my mind. Like, that's crazy. But it's guarding the tree. Adam and Eve cannot go back. The tree of life is so significant, it appears again in Revelation 22. Well, for me, as I said at the very beginning, this is a heavy sermon. I had to do a lot of personal heart work while studying and writing this sermon. I did a lot of confession and repentance along the way. And again, if you're anything like me, and you're constantly reflecting on personal sin, past and present, you begin to wonder, Where's the hope? Surely the Christian life is not being in slavery to sin. What I love about the one big story of the Bible is that it does tell us about the goodness of God, our sin nature, and the path toward reconciliation with the good and holy God of the universe. Even in Genesis 3, we, we read where the first gospel signpost was put into the ground. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, but it just means first gospel. We see a glimpse of the gospel when God addresses the consequences for his actions to the serpent. Verse 15 are precious words of hope for God's image bearers, but a prophetic warning to Satan. God says to Satan, listen, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's stunning to me that the offspring of Eve right here is referred to as a he, and as Ryan said earlier, the he being Jesus. Yes, Satan will bruise the heel of Jesus at the cross, but the ultimate and final victory, the crushing of the head of Satan, happened when Jesus defeated death by rising from the dead. And this, my friends, is the hope of the gospel. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the path from sin that results in shame. Faith in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ forgives sinners and sets them free. A person who believes their nature is good will never grasp the mercy, grace, and love of God. A person who believes their nature is good cannot grasp the depths of the gospel. A person who believes their nature is good cannot rightly know God because they rightly do not know themselves. On the other hand, a person who believes their nature is sinful can grasp the mercy, grace, and love of God. A person who believes their nature is sinful can know the depths of the gospel. A person who believes their nature is sinful can rightly know God because they rightly know themselves. A person who believes their nature is sinful knows what it means to be forgiven, and they know what it means to forgive. A person who believes their nature is sinful can experience the joy that comes from being set free from their sin through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And as we look next week, we are going to accent and highlight the freedom that we have in Christ. Because as Christians, we have been redeemed through his blood. But until then, let's remember indeed that we have a sin nature. Make a beeline to the cross when we need to confess and receive the forgiveness that is found in our Savior. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.